Um, all right, well, we're looking at um, Psalm 126 this evening. It's part of our series on what is known as the Songs of Ascents. Now, the way we're doing it is slightly unusual in, uh, in that we are alternating every other week with one of the Songs of Ascent one week and then one of the parables of Jesus the other week. Now, the reason, the thinking behind that is that over the winter months, we really wanted to bring a combination of uh, comfort, which the, um, the Songs of Ascents are particularly um, good, encouraging um, and, and comforting, particularly, particularly strong in that way. And the parables of Jesus are often surprising. So we wanted to give a mix of comfort and surprise over the winter so that uh, um, we know the comfort of God, but we don't get complacent. And we're constantly being provoked by the uh, stories that Jesus told. It seems to be working well so far. And um, I won't ask you for a response on that in case it isn't. So I'm just going to kind of push forward and uh, read to you from Psalm 126. It's a beautiful psalm. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. And they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. It's the word of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We, just, we, love, we, love, we, love, we love the Bible, Lord, and uh, we love it that you've... Uh, put down your truth in, in print. We thank you. It speaks of your unchangeable nature and your unchangeable purposes. We thank you. It always says the same thing <laughs> because you don't change. Thank you, Lord, where we do so are so changeable. You say, I, the Lord, do not change. And we want to honor you in that. And we want to pray that your unchanging word would change us, please, tonight. Pray it, God. I pray your unchanging word would change us. I pray for revolution in this place. I pray for about turns in all kinds of different ways. For some people, their entire direction. For others, specific areas of attitude and thought and understanding would be about turned by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> Amen. All right. Um, just to give you a bit of a heads up on Zion, what the word means, because it's one of those words, it's kind of spiritual words, Zion, yeah, we'll get excited and sing. But what does it mean? Well, it was one of the hills in Jerusalem. Jerusalem is a city built on hills, and um, one of those hills was called Zion, and that was the hill where the temple was built. So what happened was, was that the word Zion became synonymous with the presence of God, because that's where the temple was. So whenever the Bible talks about Zion, it's talking about more than the hill, it's talking about God's dwelling place. Which is why it says in Hebrews, which is like a New Testament book, when really by this point the focus is well away from the natural city Jerusalem, it's onto the heavenly Jerusalem, it says we come to Zion. No, what's that? We come to the presence of God. And um, the Zion is an inclusive kind of term for God's dwelling place, so the church can be brought under that whole reference. So just to give you a bit of a heads up there, because I think it's one of those words that's exciting because it's got a Z in it anyway. I mean, they're good words generally with a Z in. I don't know about you, I just I love words with Z in, but uh, maybe all of you aren't as nerdy as me, so you don't really enjoy the Zs, but it's an exciting word. And it's in lots of songs. I've noticed myself singing songs as a believer 
yeah, thank you for Zion. I think, I don't know, I'm, I'm really grateful, but actually I don't really know what I'm saying. So for in future now, when you sing about Zion and hear about it, you know, it's about the dwelling place of God. Is that cool? Yeah. All right, cool. I think I've cleared up anything that could be slightly misunderstood or hard to understand in the psalm. So the rest is pretty straightforward. We're going to look at the delight of the psalm and then the prayer of the psalm and then the promise of the psalm. So let's look at the delight. What's happening is, is the psalmist here is obviously thinking back to something that happened. He's, he, he's being stirred. He's remembering a moment where, which he describes as uh, the Lord restoring the fortunes of Zion. Now, it is almost certainly he's speaking at, about a particular point in Jewish history, which many of you may not know. So I'm going to just give you a quick, kind of a brief historical overview of the, uh, what happened with the Israelites, just so you understand what he's getting excited about. And it's very important for the whole message and has an incredible relevance for our own, our own situation. So, so basically, the, uh, the father of the Hebrew nation, if you like, was a man called Abraham who changed his name to Abraham, and God called him out of a place called Ur um, of the Chaldees. So basically uh, Babylonia, Iraq, that part of the world. He was called out of there to a place called Canaan, um, which is modern-day Israel. And uh, he was a traveling nomad in that land. God promised him the land, but he never had any of the land. He was always kind of a, a traveler in that land. And he, had, um, he gave birth to a son, Isaac, who gave birth, who, who with his wife gave birth to his son, uh, Jacob, uh, and Jacob then had twelve sons who became the um, twelve tribes of Israel. Now you'll probably remember one of those called Joseph. You might have seen it, even if you're not familiar with the Bible. The film was made, King of Dreams. Okay, so Joseph, who was sold by his brothers into slavery because they hated him, and he was sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt. Now, when in Egypt, he became a ruler in Egypt by God's grace, at which point a huge famine swept the whole of the area. So everyone came to Egypt because there was food in Egypt. And at that point, his brothers came to Egypt and, um, and, and the Israelites ended up settling in Egypt. And then they lived there for 400 years, over which time they became slaves. And then God uh, raised up a man called Moses. And through Moses, he delivered and rescued the Israelites out of Egypt. You're probably <coughs> familiar with the story through the Red Sea, opened up out. And then through a 40-year journey in the wilderness, and then into, back into Canaan, into Israel, the land that God promised to Abraham, his descendants inherited about 430, well, I guess 470 years later. So you've got this incredible kind of story. But then what God says is this. He, God says, the people that have been living here in these 400 or so years have been so horrendous and terrible that the land itself has spewed them out. And now I want you to live very differently and live holy and show the nations ar ar around you what it looks like following me. Um, make them jealous and make them want to come to know me through that. What the Israelites actually do is instead is just worship other gods and try and mix in the worship of God with the worship of other things and they're unjust and oppressive and again and again and God keeps bringing them under sort of judgment and then they repent and then they do the same thing again. You get this cycle over centuries of the same thing. In the end, um, God says that's it and um, he exiles his people out. He, he, he raises up a king called Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and he just raises Jerusalem almost to the ground and um, Israel, the Israelites are exiled exiled out and live in Babylon. Now, as ever, the heart of God, a redemptive God, always wanting to make things right. His, his prophets are prophesying you'll be there 70 years and then you will be returned to your land um, after you've lived out that exile. And incredibly, one of the prophets, Isaiah, actually speaks about this man called Cyrus, who did, did not exist in this time when Isaiah's prophesying about him. And it seems to be someone who God didn't know or, or who didn't know God and yet who God was going to use in some way to kind of 
bring restoration to God's people. It's very mysterious. Well, amazingly, after 70 years in exile, um, King Nebuchadnezzar is dead. His successor, Belshazzar, is dead. His successor, Darius, is dead. And King Cyrus of Persia is now the main man. And he becomes the king of the area over uh, Babylon. And God stirs his heart to restore the Israelites back to Jerusalem. And it's absolutely incredible fulfillment of prophecy. They go back. They're very, very excited on their way back because God is going to, God has restored our fortunes. Hallelujah. We're going to rebuild the temple and it's going to be amazing. Now, stop for a moment and imagine these Israelites, because these songs of a sense, it seems like they would sing them on, on their journeys to Jerusalem to celebrate the feasts. So they're on their way to Jerusalem. They're on their way up. They're ascending up to Jerusalem, singing these songs. And so they're, in their heart, they're remembering those exiles coming back from Babylon. Oh, God, you restored our fortunes. And it's just a beautiful, kind of emotive, even nostalgic thing where you just think, look at what God did. However, when the Israelites got back and rebuilt the temple that had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, it was a weird thing happened. The younger generation were really excited, jumping around. Yeah, the temple's been restored. They were laughing and cheering. The older generation were weeping and crying. Why? Because they remembered the former temple, and this was nothing in comparison. It was utterly disappointing. And they were weeping, because God had promised that the glory of the latter house would be greater than the glory of the former house, and it wasn't. It disappointed. Now, the reason is this. Is this whole, this whole theme of exile and return, which happened to the Israelites, is really just a picture of what has happened to the whole of humanity. And this is where all of us suddenly come into the story because there's something universal and much broader going on with regards to exile and homecoming that goes way beyond what happened to the people of Israel. You see, the Israelites could never come to that latter glory until Jesus came. Likewise nor can we. You see, here's a situation. There have only ever been three people on this planet that have existed in their lives from their first day, not in exile, but have, exist, have existed in fellowship and communion with God. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you find Adam and Eve are there, and they are home. In the sense that they're in the Garden of Eden, but more in the sense of what it represents, they're with God. They are in fellowship with God. There's no guilt, no shame, no sin, no fear, no darkness, no trembling before God in, in that negative sense. They are friends with God. There is harmony, there is peace, there is friendship. It's glorious. This is what the original situation was. We know the story. God said, just do what you like. Just that one thing. Don't do that. They did that one thing. As a result, they were banished from Eden. <coughs> But the big deal really was, was that Eden represented the presence of God. It was a temple. It represented the place where God's presence dwelt. They were being banished from the presence of God. The Bible teaches from that point, everyone who is born has been born into exile. You're, you're born alienated from the one who made you. You are born out of relationship with God. You are not home. You are not at home in that sense. We are, each of us, disjointed, uncentered. This is the heart of the problem. There's this sin that we not only inherit, but also is part of our nature and our heart. That means that not only are we born out of relationship with God, we just walk further and further away. It's exile. It's spiritual exile. It's not so much the place, but the person. We are exiled from the one who's supposed to be our dwelling place. That's why when we were singing earlier, that beautiful song, 
he'll be my dwelling place forever. It's like, oh man, I'm home. I am home. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. I said three people. First two, Adam and Eve. The other one, Jesus. Jesus was the only one born, not in that alienated position, but born in relationship with God. What that was like, I cannot imagine. But from the womb, from conception, would have in some way or another had relationship communion with God. It's beautiful. It's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. And um, we read about that in the Gospels and read about that in the Scriptures. And yet the weird thing is this. The only one who was born not exiled was the one who came in voluntary exile from heaven. He volunteered, I'm not going to, this is my home, but I'm going to go to the earth. I'm going to actually volunteer, voluntarily be exiled from the place of home. And so in that sense, we've got a, a bit of a dichotomy in Jesus, a bit of a, he's, he's home, he's with God, but he's exiled, he's not where he belongs. And as a result, we see this kind of strange thing whereby Jesus is a man of joy. Why? Because he's at home, but he's a man of sorrows. Why? He's in exile. You ever, have you ever got confused about that? People say, Jesus is the most joyful man ever. Be joyful. You ever had those sermons, yeah? And others say, he's a man of sorrows, you know. Come on now. <laughs> Be sad. You know, and it's like, what was he? He was both. Why? He was a man of joy. Hebrews 1 verse 9. Anointed with the oil of gladness beyond his companions. All right? He was the, he was the epitome of divine joy as a human being. Why? Because he's at home with the Father. Always does the things that please the Father. Just utter harmony. I mean, just in fellowship with God, in total peace. There's not that anxiety caused by trying to do his own thing, trying to kick against the will of God. Just surrendered to the will of God. And as a result, just pure joy. Beautiful. But a man of sorrows. Why? Because he was exiled. He was living somewhere where he really didn't fit. Even though he made it, it just becomes so dark. And we see various times the, the sadness of Christ in various situations where he found himself. We see him at um, Lazarus's tomb. His just friends just died and uh, he's weeping. Now, you think, well, why weep? You're just about to raise him from the dead. The reason why is because he's seeing the sadness and destruction caused by death. See, death's an imposter. Death's an invader. Death's an enemy. Jesus is just weeping when he's seeing the result of death in his creation. We see him weep over Jerusalem because Jerusalem's going to reject him. Just before he goes up there to first be welcomed and then be rejected and crucified, he weeps, if only, you know. I've longed to gather you under my arms like a hen gathers her chicks, but you, you wouldn't have it. Just... Just on a human level, on a, on a divine level, I don't understand it, but gutted. Somehow, in, under the sovereignty, I don't understand it, but just, why wouldn't you receive me? We also see in Gethsemane, just before he goes to the cross, just crying out in tears and praying and crying. It's, a, it's, it's an awesome thing. They're tears of exile. Not only that, then he becomes a double exile. At the cross, he becomes exiled from the presence of God. He becomes a full, full spiritual exile, not just to see. And the, the cross is an incredible picture of it in the sense that he's, he's suspended between earth and heaven. Earth has rejected him, exiled him. Heaven has exiled him in the sense that he's become sin and the Father's pouring out his wrath on him. He is the chief of sinners at this point. And you think, Jesus, what's going on here? This is what this psalm is really pointing to. Because at the cross, he who was rich became poor so that through his poverty we might become rich at the cross we see that's where my fortunes 
get restored. At the cross, that's where I come home. You see, the Bible says that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's an exchange that takes place. The Bible says that he became a curse for us so that we might be delivered, redeemed from the curse. You've got to get this. You must, if you don't understand this, you will not understand what it means to be a believer, to be a Christian. It's not just that you try and do good things. You know, you try and act godly or you, you try and you go to church and you try and build up some, kind of, some sort of account whereby you can present it to God and say, look, you know, oh, okay, you're now a Christian. It's not like that. In fact, it's the opposite. It's where, you, it's where you take stock of the reality of what you are and what goes on in there and uh, the darkness. And you say, man, it's, it's bad. It's bad. It's ugly. And you bring that to God. You say, how could anyone bring that to God? Why would you be confident bringing that to God? Because you recognise that the debt that that kind of darkness incurs and the judgement that that kind of sin really does store up was meted out on him at the cross. That he bore our sins in his body. I mean, it is incredible. I think every day as a believer that you go on, it becomes more and more incredible when it dawns on you just who he is and just what he has done. Why did he do it? The Bible says for the joy set before him. For the joy set before him. It was a joy. It was a a delight in Jesus. All on the cross, it's all darkness. It's all, man, you just think, it's all bad. It goes dark for three hours in the middle of the day. You think, man. But then you go on a few more chapters in the Gospels and suddenly you've got these two women come into a tomb and it's at the break of day. Why? Because light's about to break out. Why? Because Jesus has risen from the dead. Okay? So suddenly it's like, oh, it's, it's all changed. Everything has changed all of a sudden. And it becomes like Psalm 126. It's like, are we dreaming? So the ladies run back to the disciples and say, we've seen the Lord. And they're like... Nah, it's like, surely not. It's like like in the psalm, we were like those who dream. It's like, you know, you can imagine going, pinch me, pinch me. You know, this can't be happening. The Lord is back from the dead. The Lord is alive. I mean, please, people who say, oh, the disciples, they really, you know, they cooked this one up. The disciples didn't believe it. They really didn't. They protested. Even one of them said, unless I put my fingers in those holes, I'm not going to believe. I mean, it was like there was a resistance even to it. Jesus upbraided them for their unbelief and their their, their doubting hearts. I mean, man, they didn't cook this up. They were shocked. It's like, can this really be happening? It's too good to be true. Wake me up, someone. I think I'm looking at Jesus. Psalm 126. It's a beautiful, beautiful moment, you see. What a dream that death might be defeated. And the fear of death dragged off with it. How many live under the fear of death? I don't know, because it's probably people try to act kind of, you know, people kind of act cocky, don't they? Kind of, like, you know, I'll face it when it comes. But only God knows what goes on in the heart. But I want to tell you, the Bible is clear that one of the devil's main, main weapons against us is, is he keeps us into slavery of the fear of death. And the Bible says that Jesus defeated him through his death and resurrection, so you can be free from the fear of death. I, tell, I want to testify to you, someone, this is real. Before, when I became a Christian, I had a fear of serious disease and death. I'd seen uh, one of my friends die, almost, I guess, kind of almost in front of me. I visited him about two or three days before he died of cancer. and I, He was in such a state, I didn't recognise him. I walked past the bed, I thought it was someone else. I, it was horrendous. And, and uh, just being there, I guess, for an hour or so as a 17-year-old and just seeing, really, you know, what, what this disease had reduced 
this contemporary of mine too, it, it got into me and I'd find myself searching for lumps and all that, you know, that kind of, it really got into me. And then as a new believer, I remember, I, 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 um, I remember someone just saying in a youth meeting, I just feel there's someone here with a real fear of disease and death. And I was like, I just, you know, before you put your hand up, you're crying. You're like, it's me, man. <laughs> I need help, you know, I'm checking for lumps. I'm, you know, I'm all over the place. And he prayed for me. Jesus totally set me free. Hallelujah. Why? Because he defeated death, you see. Because of what he's done, you can be free. It's real. It actually, it actually works. It works, this stuff. It's the gospel. Okay? It's not just theological truth. It breaks in to your very being, your soul, your mind, your heart, the way that you live. Fantastic. Your orphaned heart can be adopted. Remember I talked about that thing, we're born out of kilter? You ever seen kids and the way they are with their parents? It's a very interesting thing to watch because they act real cocky sometimes, don't they? And they play the fool and show off. But as long as they know where their parent is, it's like... Locked in. Okay. Hey, I'm a big boy, you know. And it's like, but it's because they know the parents. And the mums or mum or dad is there, right? And, uh, but as soon as mum or dad suddenly disappears behind someone else, I mean, I've seen it. I mean, I've seen my kids, you know, I might be 10 feet away, but I'm hidden from view. And they're all, they're playing big and doing their thing one minute. And look around. And where they thought I was, I no longer am. In a minute, in a split second, as this panic kicks in, it's like disorientation. I don't know where to go. Yeah, listen, when you become a Christian, you become adopted by God. His spirit comes and lives inside of you and witnesses with your spirit, you're one of God's children. You become adopted. You're no longer that orphan walking around kind of trying to find safety and certainty in various other people or things or hobbies or whatever. But actually, you know, you become genuinely, you become reconciled to the one who created you, to your father in heaven. And his spirit lives inside of you and you're no longer orphan, but you're adopted. It's beautiful. This is salvation. It's beautiful. Your vilest sins laid out. Your most shameful deeds laid out. You think, Matt, is that good news? Yeah, why? Because they get laid out and they get nailed to a cross. And it's like all the vile stuff. Your conscience is cleansed. God receives you. God forgives you. God forgives you. It's the gospel. It's the gospel. Justification. God says, you're all right. You know that? That's what just, justification means that God declares you righteous. That amidst all the accusations of Satan and your own heart and your own mind, God says, you're all right. You're all right. I declare you. It's a legal thing. God declares you before the whole court of heaven as righteous. From the moment you become a believer, from the very moment you are as justified as you could ever be, you've come home. That's the point I'm trying to make. Through Jesus Christ being exiled on your behalf, you get to come home. You get to come home. Now, this should surely be holy laughter in the church, shouldn't there? That's what it says here. All of scripture points to Christ. This is speaking about what is ours in Christ. It says our mouth was filled with laughter. It's okay to laugh. It's good to laugh. Spurgeon said laughter can be as holy as tears. There should be a holy joy that marks us as people. Dave Smith, you'll be glad to know it's okay to laugh. It's a manifestation of your saintliness that you laugh most of the time. And uh, it should mark the people of God. It should mark the people of God. Shouts of joy should mark the people of God. When we come to celebrate and worship him, shouts of joy, it is biblical, it is right that we do so. It is wrong to get into a mentality that says silence is reverent. It can be. But it isn't always. Sometimes it's just passivity or laziness or unbelief. That's silent. 
There's different kinds of silence, there's different kinds of shouting. Shouting isn't always reverent, but it can be. It can be pure gospel. Yes! I want you to know that, right? Because I don't want to hype anything up, but I want you to know it's okay to shout with joy. It's okay to laugh. It's okay to clap. It's okay. I read, I read a book this week by somebody saying, no, it's wrong to clap. It's wrong to clap in church, you're saying. Yeah? So it's, it's, just, it's just emotionalism. It's just superficial. I thought, I'm sure this is in the Bible. That it's okay. So I searched, and it does. It says in the Bible, clap your hands, all you peoples. God says, clap. <laughs> yeah? It's part of your worship. God says shout. There must be times of shouting. There must be times of laughter. And long may there be times of tears and silence as well. All for the glory of God. But we've come home. Maybe you haven't come home. Maybe you're thinking, this stuff, this is alien to me. Maybe it's because you haven't come home. Maybe you're still in that alienated position I was talking about. You're actually not home. You don't know it. It's not your experience to know forgiveness of sins. Maybe you do what most of us did before we knew Jesus, which is pretend you're not that bad. That's no solution. That's really no solution to just pretend you're not that bad or just to find someone worse than you and say, well, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. That's not the point. The point is, is that you were made for glory. You were not made to be better than so-and-so. You were made for glory and you have fallen horrendously from what you were made for and you are alienated from God. And you need to be forgiven. And God's provision of his son, Jesus Christ, is God's way of saving. The Bible says that God has um, created no other way under heaven by which you must be saved. Only through Jesus Christ. That's God's provision for us. It's so important you understand that if you want to come home. And you might have all kinds of questions about that. And I want to say to you, I'm really happy to sit down and answer your questions and talk that through with you. Because it's vital that you grapple with it and wrestle with it. And don't just say, well, I do believe it or I don't. But say, well, look, hold on. You're saying he's the only way. That's exactly what I'm saying. I'm saying he's the only way. How can I say such a thing? Because he said such a thing. Jesus said it. Okay? So either, either it's true and he's true or he's telling lies. It's not, but it's definitely not just that the church makes up he's the only way to try and boost our numbers against other religions. Okay? That's not the deal. The deal is Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's vital that we get to grips with this stuff and realize he is the way home. He is the way home. So then there's the prayer of the psalm. He says, uh, he then, so he's looked back, he saw, wow. Then he said, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Nejad. Then the Nejad, that, that, that means dry parched land. There was a place in the, your Bible might say in the south. That's how the King James has translated it. Because in the south, uh, there's a region called the Nejad, which was really dry and parched and desert-like. And what the psalmist is saying, God, I want you to so bless us, the areas of our life, individually and corporately as your people, instead of looking like a desert and parched and dry, are filled with fruit. Yeah? That's a biblical prayer. All right? It's like, God, instead of the desert, I want floods. Now, I want to, I want to, I want to kind of nail some of you on this, because my fear is that some of you, 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 you kind of, it's kind of like you feel like it's a godly thing to just ask for a little bit, you know? Maybe it's like, some cultures are like this, you know? Some cultures, it's not, it's not polite to ask for a lot, you know? I remember the kids who were saying, do you want one? He's going to be saying no. I'm thinking, I really do. I'm just saying no. I don't even know why I'm saying no. And now I'm too embarrassed to change it. And, you know, I just, it got drilled into me from the start. I don't, don't say yes, that's rude. It's like, listen, 
God wants you to be hungry for his blessing. He wants you to be hungry and thirsty that your soul might not be a parched land, but might be flooded with his presence and with his spirit. That's what he wants. That's his desire. He doesn't want you just to have a little bit. Look at Jesus talking about fruit. He says it glorifies the Father when you bear loads of fruit. He talks about fruit, much fruit, more fruit, lasting fruit. It's it's big. It's big. He talks, about, he talks about the fruit in your life being either 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. These are big numbers, brothers and sisters. We need to pray, God, restore my fortunes. Now, I don't suggest, I'm not saying pray for money, okay? You might need money, in which case pray for money, but don't pray to get rich. It's a snare. Don't do that. But pray that you will be richly blessed. Why? Well, because the Bible says in Jesus Christ, every spiritual blessing has been made yours. God wants to bless you. Why? So you can be a blessing. God wants you to walk in the fullness of his blessing so you can be a blessing. That's the whole Abrahamic thing. God says, I'm going to bless you and make you a blessing. So you become a channel of God's blessing. Do you want that? Then pray. Pray. Don't think to yourself, well, it kind of, you know, it happened once. That was enough. No, the psalmist says, I remember that. I want some more. Yeah? That was amazing, Lord. But, you know, there's a few dry bits there. I, I want you to bless me again. It's okay to do that, and it's, it's a biblical model here for us. So it's just a quick one to just say, pray. Pray. If you, again, I wanted to speak to you. If you don't believe in Jesus, I want to say, dare to ask that he would make, that this God, say, God, if you're out there, dare to ask that he would reveal himself to you and bless you. Dare to ask that this Jesus is that is the Son of God who died for you and was exiled for you, could bring you home. Maybe as I'm talking, there's something in you which just kind of, it may not be, if this is you, right, as I'm talking, there's something in you which is kind of like a longing to be home. You know that feeling, like, a bit like maybe some of you are uh, first-year students and you're going to go home at Christmas. It's exciting, and it should be. Yeah, you feel, whoa, that feeling of going home, you know, chestnuts roasting, you know, that whole thing, yeah? You know, the, right? So, oh, yeah, right? So you're excited about it. Listen, maybe there's something that's kind of stirring on that regard as I'm preaching. I want to put it to you that maybe that's not just some nostalgic little thing going on or some kind of psychosomatic thing, but what's happening is this, is that God is actually beginning to quicken in you uh, a longing and a desire to come home. And if that is happening, let me just, I believe that might well be God. Respond to it. That's all I'm saying. Respond to it. Don't write it off or dismiss it. Or maybe you're someone here who you've known Jesus, but you know what? The reality is you're not really walking with him anymore in that sense. It's kind of like you've, you know, you've known what it is to walk with him and, and know him, but there's been a straying or just kind of, you've, or you've just got discouraged and backed right away and you know, you're recognising that was a bad move and you're here in a little bit of a call home tonight. Respond to it. Respond to it. Now, you know, it could even be someone who was really regular at church and, you know, people, no one would know, but in your heart, you know, it's, just, it's almost like, man, for whatever reason, discouragement can set in, bitterness, anger, bad experiences, and you just, back, you just something happens internally and you just back off a bit and it just, get, it just, it just seems to get wider and wider. Respond to the call to come home. But also to those of you that are following Jesus and in step with him, keep praying at all times. Don't stop. Keep praying. We're going to end on the uh, promise of the psalm. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves 
with him. Jesus' tears were tears of exile. They were also tears, of, I believe, of just of sowing. He was, you know, he, was, he, was, he sowed himself into his creation. And uh, it was hard work at times. He was opposed, bitterly opposed, hated, insulted, plotted against. Stories were made up about him. He was accused falsely as he sowed himself into his creation. It's, sowing's hard work. You know that, don't you? Sowing is hard work. I want to say that to you. Sowing and reaping is a biblical principle. It says in Galatians 6, it says, uh, Don't be deceived. God isn't mocked. Whatever one sows, this will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, um, I'm going to get agricultural now. It doesn't happen often, all right? I'm going to get rural on you. Um, Basically, here's how it works. It's not going to be too technical. But um, um, it's like the farmer goes out, turns over the ground, drops the seeds in. They fall right into that ground there. And then there's a waiting time during which those seeds need two things, sunlight and water. And then at some point, mysteriously, the thing just pops up. (coughs) Farming lesson number one. All right, you're all equipped now. If any of you feel the call to the rural towns and villages, you, you can go now. You've, you've, been, you've been equipped. Okay, that's how it works, generally. Okay, the Bible is clear as in the natural, so in the spiritual. What you put in is what you get out. You always reap what you sow. You don't always reap when you sow. In fact, you normally don't. It would be, imagine a farmer dropping it in, whoop, great. <laughs> Cut it down, take it home. It's not how it works. If there was a seed that did that, I'm sure it, it, would, be, it would be very popular. But that's not how it works, right? There's a, there's a period of waiting. Something has happened, something's been dropped in, and then there's an invisible season whereby something, you bet something's happening, but it's, it's to the naked eye, it's invisible. It's a hidden work. It's a hidden work. And then, oh, Suddenly it's visible. That's, that's how it works, okay? So, so you don't always reap when you sow. But also, I would say this, you don't always reap where you sow. This is where it would be different from a natural farmer, you see. Because you can, you can sow into some people. You can sow into some particular people in terms of telling them about Jesus, loving them, serving them, and just saying, I just want to love and serve these people. And then you can find, actually, in terms of what you're sowing there, it may be that you never see kind of, you know, the results of your sowing there, but bang, there's just, there's just blessing comes back in regards to what you've sown. It's like you've reaped what you've sowed, but you just didn't reap where you sowed. And it's really important that you understand that. Otherwise, you can get, actually, you can get in a bit of trouble. You can be like almost holding God to ransom. God, I've done that, and you haven't done that. No, God says you reap what you sow, and you will reap what you sow. But you can't put it into a formula of God must do it like this, in this way, there, and at that time. He does it as he does it, but he does it. The promise is that he does it. Okay? So you can imagine some people saying, well, blow this, I've been sowing in there for two years now and nothing's doing, nothing's coming good there. You know, this stuff obviously doesn't work. But if you stopped them and said, well, hold on a minute, what about this thing over here? Oh, well, that's going great. But I sowed there. You know, not working. No, God says you will reap what you sow. So to the spirit, you'll reap eternal life. So to the flesh, you'll reap corruption. But sometimes when you sow, you know what? It involves crying. Tears of desperation, tears of frustration, tears of discouragement, tears of intercession, tears of compassion. Just like, man, 
tears of just, what now? Confusion. It's hard. And I want to end on this, because uh, I think I could, I could do two things with us as a church. I could kind of just sort of, I could just preach shortcuts and easy living. And, but you know what? It would just be a disaster. Or I could say, look, there is a, there is a process of sowing and reaping. And it happens in God's timing. And the sowing um, involves uh, hardship. But please, let's do it because we want to reap a mighty harvest. And let's not give way to discouragement or confusion or frustration. We will feel it from time to time, but we don't let it master us because we've got a promise, haven't we? We've got a promise. We've got a promise here. Those who sow in tears will reap with joy. And I, you know... I. I would say I genuinely feel a settled confidence, not just in terms of the promise, but even in terms of things I'm hearing. It's like little things are starting to just shoot up. I mean, it's incredible. It's an amazing time this morning. Amazing time in terms of people coming to Christ. It's incredible. Just, it's just like, wow. Um, you just think, man. And uh, there's just more and more... Stuff. Maybe you're here tonight, you don't know Christ, but you know, maybe your friend has bought you because they've just been telling you about Jesus and, uh, and just, you know, trying to share Christ with you because, you know, we just, we just, we can't keep it to ourselves. It's just good news. It's just the, it's the gospel, man. It's God's way of salvation. It's God's rescue. And if that's you and you're here, I want to say, look, there'll be opportunity for you to come home tonight. There'll be opportunity for you to say, do you know what, I've had enough of being out in the cold. I want to come back, I want to come to know God. And it's a radical thing, a radical, ra- it's like a total U-turn. You might say, what changes? I say, everything changes. There was a friend I heard of once, who, and he was speaking to someone who wanted to become a Christian. This person said to him, if I become a Christian, have I got to stop wearing jeans? It's <laughs> a question he asked. And my friend said to him, might do. Now, why did he say might do? It's not because it's wrong to wear jeans. It's because... He wanted to, the person to understand that when you come to follow Jesus, everything's up for grabs. You can't just tack him on. You can't, oh, I have a bit of that. Yeah, they looked happy. I like the music. I have a bit of that as well. No, no. You die. And I want to end on this scripture here. Jesus said this about himself. Jesus said, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's just about to go to the cross. He's saying, just like a seed falls into the ground and dies, I'm now going to do that. But just as a seed, when it then grows, grows into a plant, has loads of seeds on it, there's been a multiplication in the same way, through my death, I'm going to produce loads of little me's. All right? And it's worked, hasn't it? Otherwise, a lot of us wouldn't be sitting in here tonight, okay? This is probably, I don't know, billion, two billion uh, production. Incredible of what Jesus' is throwing himself into the ground. But then straight away afterwards he says this. He says, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honour him. So Jesus says, I'm going into the ground to die. You coming? I want to follow you, Jesus. Where are you going? Down there. That's why... The Bible talks about Christian salvation as being crucified with Christ. His crucifixion was unique. He bore his, our sins in his body once and for all. Okay? But it talks about our old, sinful, Adamic 
self being nailed to that cross with Jesus. That old self dying and being buried with him through baptism. And then a new man in Christ being raised up with him in his resurrection and seated with him now in the heavenly places in Christ. That is what conversion is. It's about being joined in with Jesus. So that means you utterly die to yourself. You utterly die to those things you cling on to. Your hopes, your dreams, everything. You say, Jesus, I'm just going to totally put my faith in the fact that if I give you, give you myself entirely, you will give me back the things that are good and they'll be much better than I could ever have imagined. And I'm going to stop holding on to things and keeping that and hiding that because you can't do that. I'm, going to, I'm coming in all the way, Jesus, and you just, Geronimo! And you just go and you follow him. That's Christianity. That's the faith. That's, that's it. And it involves dying to stuff, and it involves laying stuff down, and it involves repenting, and it involves, you know, every time the Holy Spirit shows you something, you think, man, it's ugly, you confess it, you repent of it, and it, and it involves just finding yourself in Him. And coming to a new life. So you want to come home tonight, that's what it means. If you're one tonight who would say, well, I have come home, I want you to know that's what it means. Okay? That's what it means. It's not just you and have a little bit of Jesus and stuff like that. No. No. He is the Lord. He is the Lord. And as you sow into him and into all that he's called you to with tears, the promise is this, that there will be seasons where you come running back to your loved ones with a big old lump of harvest under your arms saying, look at this! And I tell you, those seasons most certainly happen. They certainly do. They normally follow by another season of sowing. But then another season of reaping. And then the time will come, thankfully, one day when Jesus returns and everything that we've sowed into ourselves, into the kingdom, there will be a return unlike anything we could imagine whereby we get a brand new glorified body that will last forever, one that's fitted out for eternity, where we can dwell with him in the new heavens and the new earth. And I'm not quite sure what we will do for eternity, to be honest. It seems like there'll be a mixture of kind of really just kind of being amazed seeing him face to face and thinking, man, this will do forever. <coughs> and then also him saying, I've got some stuff for you to do too. And we say, okay, fine. But can I come back and see you? <laughs> Quite a lot. I don't know how it'll work. I'm being silly now. But listen, <laughs> I want to just say there is an, there's an eternity there for, for us. And it's kind of... I want to come home. Come home. If you're backslidden, come home. If you've never known him, come home to Jesus. Come home, give him your, not just, don't say give him your heart, no. Give him your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. And give him your heart, mind, soul, and strength forever. <coughs> You'll never do a better thing. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you, Jesus, for your incredible sacrifice for us. We thank you, you were voluntarily exiled not just from heaven, but from the Father. We, don't, we could never grasp, as we ought, what you went through. And like it says in that song, Lord, we'll never know how much it costs to see my sins upon the cross. But we say thank you, Jesus. You've revealed it to us to a degree, and it's turned our lives upside down. Thank you for sins forgiven. Thank you for restoring our fortunes. Thank you for bringing us home. May we be like those who dream. May we be like those whose mouths are filled with laughter. May we be like those who shout for joy. May we be able to testify, I am glad the Lord has done great things for me. 
We thank you and we bless you, Lord. We want you to know that we love you. Amen. 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 We're going to take the bread and the wine now, which is just massive. It's coming to, it's coming to, the, to that place of the cross again and saying, thank you, Jesus, that your body was broken for me and your blood shed for the forgiveness of my sins. And it's celebrating in that. Let's do that in community. Let's pray with one another. Let's stand with one another. Let's remind one another Jesus' body broken and his blood shed. Let's, let's not be constrained by the rows and things. We're going to have the last part of this service, worshipping the Lord, singing the songs, praying with one another, taking the bread and taking the wine. And when it kind of feels right, we'll sort of draw it together. Um, and I'm sure the Holy Spirit will probably want to do a few other things in the midst of it all as well. So let's just gather back in. Let's stand, shall we? And let's just be open to where the Lord takes us for this next while.